This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Have you ever wondered about the legality side of architecture? Exactly. Most people don't either. While it's not an exciting part of the profession, it is one that every licensed architect must consider on every project. So today's topic is, is that even legal? Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're gonna learn about the legalities of architecture and hopefully hear some tales of the is that even legal variety and gain some insight into this often overlooked side of the profession. Joining us today are Mike Coger and Sal Verastro. Mike Coger is an attorney on the contract documents team at the American Institute of Architects in Washington, DC. At the AIA, Mike works with a group of attorneys and architects to create and revise the AIA contract documents. Mike practiced civil litigation prior to joining the AIA, primarily representing contractors and property owners in construction-related disputes. Mike also worked as an architect and briefly as an urban planner in San Diego before transitioning to the practice of law. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Bob. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're happy you can be with us today. Also joining us is Sal Verastro. Mr. Verastro is a principal in the firm Spillman Farmer Architects, and he's been that since 1983. His expert knowledge of construction specifications, materials, and methods, expertise in roofing and building envelope forensics, and a broad understanding of design and construction make him a valuable asset. He serves at the Construction Specifications Institute as an instructor at the CSI Academy's educational courses, teaching the principles of specifications and contract administration. How are you doing today, Sal? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you guys have some skins on the wall. I'm glad that you're both here to talk about the exciting chapter that we're going to discuss today, which is the legal side of the profession. I know I said this in the in the opening segment, and as I said it, I thought, those guys might totally disagree with the fact that I said this is not that interesting. And I don't mean to demean it that way. What I mean is that I know that architects tend to not think about this part of the kind of the workflow a lot, maybe from a volume standpoint. We all know it's very, very serious, and it's very, very important, which is why we wanted to have you guys come on today to kind of talk about why it's important, why they should think about it, and the sort of energy and effort people should expend towards making sure they have their house in order from a legal standpoint. In my mind, absolutely no question. And it is the fascinating part about it, to be honest with you. Just for an example, anytime there's a legal seminar, architects flock to those seminars. You can have a seminar on one of the hottest products that's out there, but I will tell you that if you apply a legal aspect to it or a seminar on the top legal cases in the U.S., architects flock to it because it's the most damaging aspect in our careers or potentially you're learning from other people's mistakes. I was always told you can make a mistake once, but it's nice to learn from somebody else's mistakes so you don't make them. Yeah, that is a good way That's to good put advice. it. That's great legal advice or just life advice in general. Yeah, we talk about that. You know, we had that phrase, my dad used to have the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, which is it's kind of the message that if you make a mistake and you put yourself in a position to repeat that mistake, there is no recovery from that. That is 100% on you. I've never heard the learn from somebody else's mistake. I need to put that in my quiver, you know, my little arrow story, you know, say, hey, here's this lexicon of how we can phrase this. So if you had to sum it up as far as what's the most important aspect of covering yourself legally in just a couple of sentences, what do you think that would be from an architect standpoint? Yeah, I think that, I mean, really, establishing expectations and, and getting on the right page with your client is incredibly important. I feel like a lot of architects, at least ones that I've worked with in the past and ones that I've represented in the past, 
They think they can do things on a nod and handshake basis, and they think that their clients know the services that they will perform and that they're expected to perform. And a lot of times that works out well initially, but then there's some kind of a dispute in which you realize for the very first time that, oh, you expected me to do five different designs, and I was only going to do one. And we never committed that to writing. And that's a really bad time to figure out that you have a misunderstanding about what your expectations were. So getting those down in writing and just really having a contract that you can feel familiar with, I think is incredibly important just to set expectations on a project. It's an education tool for architects to teach their clients about the services that they'll provide. To me, that's one of the most important parts. There's a lot of little things that I, I think architects need to be aware of, but getting that level of expectation and setting that Setting the expectations right. so that everybody's kind of on the same page when you sure. start off, well, right? Yeah. That really, simply put, is defining the scope of the work. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what the goal is. You're hiring me to perform a service. I'm going to define my understanding of what you're asking me to do in this contract, and sure. then you agree to it, and that's how we go about the process of executing yeah. it. Do you find that's where a lot of litigation comes in, in that aspect of just it's a misunderstanding of, I thought you were doing that. You know, I thought you were doing something different. Sure. That's definitely where a lot of things come into play. To be fair, a lot of litigation comes about because you have a problem on a building five years later. And it's, you know, I'm aware. So those kinds of things are really what stem a lot of where a lot of litigation claims come from. Definitely misunderstandings is a big component of it. If I can add that, I think, well, you said it very well. So understanding the scope of work or scope of services is paramount but also understanding what you're not going to do. Sometimes you can say, I'm doing this, this, and this, and the owner doesn't really understand. They think, oh, that's all included. Like what we would consider extra services or additional services. You have to spell that out as well, what that might be. If, for example, if you have to uh, do some soils testing, no one would consider that maybe in the base bid. But until you get to the job, you realize, oh, we need some additional testing here. Well, that's on the owner's bill, so to speak. But they come to us and say, well, you should have known that. Why didn't you tell me that up front? Certainly you knew that. Well, it's not. So sometimes I like to tell them, here's what we are going to do, and here's what we're not going to do. Well, I, I want to ask you a question about that. Sure. Because that gives me tired head, what you just said. <laughs> and I go, if, you, if I have to define everything that I am going to do, in my mind, if I tell you I'm going to do it, that in turn tells you what I'm not going to do. If I say I'm going to pick up this pen and then set it back on the table, because I said it that way, it also means I'm not going to run down the street and jump on a lake. I mean, at what point do you have to just keep defining all the things you're not going to do? I don't understand that. Okay. Yeah. Help me understand well, that's that. A, that's a good point. I'm sure you got stories too, but I'll just tell you a yeah, classic stories. one that that's today. So in the new, the new IBC, for example, International Building Code, years ago, we would assist the owner in what we call special inspections that are required on the job. You're testing the concrete, you're testing welding and things like that. The new code says that we as architects cannot render those services directly to the owner. In fact, the contractor can't provide them any longer. The owner has to go outside the contract and hire an independent testing agency. What I'm trying to say is we have to tell the owner, because it's in the contract that those things will be done, but we don't say who's going to do them. So we have to spell that out because they think, well, how can I get my building done if those inspections don't occur? And so we tell them up front in our services, we're not going to provide those. In fact, you have to provide them independently. We can't even usher them in, so to speak. But don't you also get that caveat that, you know, this is legal speak here, but not limited to <laughs> that you see, you know, and I, I list a bunch of stuff and I go, at what point do you say, draw short of the line of, and I'm not going to go jump in the lake. Right. That's the thing that I find is very difficult. The way I look at it a lot of times, I'm not speaking from a position of knowledge, a depth on this matter. 
You know, in fact, I asked Andrew to run point on this episode because he does a lot more commercial work than I do. And he's much more familiar with this type of the contracts contract side yeah. of the business than I am. I do a lot of residential. My contracts are like three pages long. So if I say, this is what I'm going to do, and then it seems like if I need you to do something, I need to say, and this is what you're going to do, rather than this is not what I'm going to do. Does that make sense? It does make sense. That's a perfectly reasonable way to do a contract. I guess I'll take an example. Is I mean, most architects are at least familiar with our B101 owner architect agreement. It's the one that we all studied in architecture school and we didn't understand it. But then as we've gotten along in our careers, we've you know used that document or at least are aware of its existence. And that document's been around in some shape or form for like 100 years, something like that. I look at that document as more of a historical, it's more of a history piece. Like it's a historical collection of real life architect scenarios that architects that have been on our committee have put language in there because of specific instances that they might have only had once or twice in their career, but they really got burned on it. And I'll give you an example. So If you look at Article 4 on B101, it is a laundry list of extra work that architects are often asked to do, but are sometimes expected to do for free. It's literally like a page and a half of just a list of extra stuff. The first one on that list is design the building. We expect you to do that for free. (laughs) Right. Um, but But all of those things, when I read them, because I know the history of the documents program, I know that that's not just some attorney writing up a bunch of caveats over the years. That's actual architects that we've worked with, folks like... That's that, learning from the past mistakes. Right, kind and of thing right there. I see every one of those little lines, you know, reviewing submittals out of sequence. I think there's some architect out there on our committee 30, 40 years ago that got really burnt one time by reviewing a bunch of submittals out of sequence or answering RFIs that already had an answer to them. And so that's why they've written in there that I want to get extra money because... This happens on enough projects that, you know, I need to make sure I have a way to get more money for it. They're the kind of things that you might not encounter on every project, but when you do need it, it's kind of helpful to have it. I never answer anything twice. I never have to do that, right? That's not a thing that happens. (laughs) Can I add to uh, what Mike said? One thing for sure. I think when you use the AIA documents, and I'm not here to promoting them, so to speak, but you don't have to incorporate what I'm not going to do into the AIA documents because they're on their game and they picked up a lot of those things in advance. There's a few things that I think are isolated to regional or specific to the job, things like that. Just a real quick story. It just happened to me. And uh, there was no AIA contract because it was such a small thing. I was doing a job and I realized I needed to have a, a rooftop beam sized, one little beam. And I called the structural engineer and I said, uh, who wasn't on the job. It was an interiors project. And he said, I'll size the beam for you. Great. You know, he charged me, I'm exaggerating, 1800 bucks. Okay. It was an email agreement. And I trusted him. And he did. He did the job. And then the shop drawing came in from the subcontractor and I sent it off to him and he sent me a bill for $900 to review the shop drawing. And I said, why would you not incorporate that into the 1800 and tell me originally? Why, why is this an extra service? Well, it wasn't part of our agreement. I said, you should have told me you weren't going to review it. And I would have just said, what's it going to cost? Because I can't complete it. And there's a classic example of him not telling me it was included or not. I would have just assumed it was included. Now, if I used an AIA contract with a subcontractor, it's spelled out, but it was such a small little dinky thing. Um, that's why I'm really cautious about what's included and what's I not I bet included. that happens a lot, quite honestly. I'm sure it does. Even the small projects have big risks. <laughs> I feel like sometimes they have more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those, are you kidding me kind of moments. Like, if someone says, hey, I want X there are certain things that you assume become part of that deliverable. Luckily for me, I haven't been burned yet by that. But, you know, just hearing it makes me go, 
man, that could have happened to me a hundred times over where I've done something very similar and I didn't put a proper contract in place and they sent me the bill and I haven't been hit with a $900 upcharge for them to review the drawing later, but there's nothing that said that that couldn't have happened. You're right. I didn't have the right paperwork in place. Right. Let's move on and talk about a few things related to the phases of design and delivery. When we talk about the basic legal issues, what are the like high points for the design phase of work? I mean, it seems like setting expectations is really what that's about in the beginning, but is there any some other topics sure. that seem... I can probably, Sal and I probably have different ideas on this, but from working in a law office before working at the AIA, I can tell you that a lot of the issues that came in across my desk during the design phase were about getting paid. It's about architects not getting paid, right? (laughs) And, you know, not getting paid for their basic service, not getting paid for their extra work. Some key things to think about on that is don't let your clients get behind. Clients who get behind on payments tend to stay behind and get further behind. I think that's probably true with like any kind of debt. Don't let them get too far behind before you start hounding them for money. And also probably the biggest thing in far as an architect getting paid is to not give up your rights to your drawings and your intellectual property. You want to be giving your client a license to use them if they've paid your bill. And if they haven't paid your bill, you can revoke that license and you're in a really good position to push back on them and say, we're not going to continue on with design. You can't use my design until you've paid me in full. If you give up the rights to your intellectual property as you're going along, they can replace you real quick. Mm, so just something to keep in mind. And scary. Yeah, that's a little nuts. Well, I mean, it seems like that's, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. It's so patently obvious once you say it out loud that this is licensed. You're, you're paying me to provide this service. And if you don't pay me, you don't get the fruits from my service. And the contract language kind of spells out that's how this works. It does. And it's, it goes in a lot of detail, of course, and most of our agreements have that kind of language. But there are a lot of owners, I'll tell you, a lot of owners, you probably worked with them, that think that when you finish your drawings, that they own your drawings, that they own them and they can do with them what they want and they can fire you and replace you for the CA work. Has that ever rung a you know, that true? That hasn't happened to me, thank no. goodness. It hasn't, but, but actually we were talking to someone yesterday and that's happened to him a few times, that he would do the project and as soon as he did the deliverable that would yield a permit, they fired him so that they didn't have to pay him to do the construction administration. It's a great way to save money on a project if you're an owner. And I'm saying that jokingly, but a lot of owners think that way, especially if you backload your fees as an architect. You've got a lot of money put into the CA services and you get down that road where you've got, you know, you've got your CDs done. And if you still owe that architect, let's just say a million dollars for CA services. Well, if that owner can go and fire you and hire another architect to do the CA for 200000 I found a lot of clients in that exact position. I mean, they're going to take that opportunity unless you've protected yourself by getting your fees a little bit more evenly managed throughout the project. And or just front-loading them. Front-loading them. I, I was I was going to avoid saying front-loading, but yes. You know, Andrew, took, <laughs> Andrew took care of that for yeah, you. Yeah, I did it. I, <laughs> I, I stepped Perfect. into that room. Yeah, and that's the problem. I see a lot of architects, and I'm guilty of it too. We try to front-load our projects to avoid that situation in case we are terminated, but Unless you manage your money and your your invoicing and and spending that money, when it comes down to CA, you're really riding on on nothing. There's no money coming in. The other thing I wanted to add, big exclamation point, we should never give our rights to the intellectual property over to the owner, but architects do it all the time, particularly when they have a good relationship with the client. Project went well, they come back five years later and they want to do a different tenant fit out or something or an addition. And maybe they're going to have another architect do it or, you know, they have an architect in the family now. They want the drawings. They want the CAD drawings. And we give them up 
A, they think it's their property. They own it. Of course, they paid for that. Number one. Number two, we feel obligated because we don't want to hurt their feelings. It's a tough road to hoe, and it's also one of those things you don't want to ruin the relationship with a client, so you give in, which is we shouldn't do that. The other thing in my aspect, and under the design element, is the budget. Architects have to understand the owner's budget up front and respect it and not just blow it off. And I think that's one of the legal things that architects forget. That's the most, one of the most important aspects. You're responsible for the budget. I know we, we've talked about this or we'll talk about it, is that what do architects get sued for? Well, the budget doesn't come to fruition until later on in the project, the end of the project where you blew the budget. And if you don't understand it up front, you're never going to hit that target. All right, so let's move on to construction legal issues during the construction phase of work. What are some of those big items? Well, I'll give probably my favorite one, which is if you're going to do CA work, construction administration, do it right. Don't tiptoe into that portion of architecture and only do half CA services. If you're going to do CA work, go to the job site on a regular basis. Keep your eyes open, you know, report back to the owner things that you see, review payment applications, do the RFIs right. Ran into a number of architects who will, you know, they'll kind of tiptoe into the CA phase and then all of a sudden they're going to be held to the standard of an architect who was doing a full set of services and get you in a little bit of difficulties. Sal, you oh boy, I could, got some answers there. <laughs> an exclamation point. Well, I'm really big on CA. You see how excited Sal looked? I, got, well, I, I was ready to jump up. Um, I'm um, a big advocate that contract administration is so important, and I'll tell you why. What's the last thing the client remembers? I agree with you 100% on that. Turn the keys over at CA. If you do a lousy job, that's what they remember. And typically what I find is during design and construction, well, early in construction, but design mostly, you don't really deal with the president of the company. You're dealing with other people, the facilities people, but the president shows up during contract administration at the end of it, and they're walking through the building, they want to see it, and there's issues, and it comes up, you got the contractor speaking ill of us in his ear, and then they look at us like, why? Why did I have this hire this architect? So Mike's absolutely correct. You got to put time and money into doing it correctly. And it's not something we get a lot of training on in school. It's kind of learning the field. Can I tell a nightmare CA story I had as a very young architect? Would you? Do oh, it. Of course. Please, please. <laughs> so I was working on a fairly large, I was probably three years out of school. Um, no, maybe two. Anyway, I was doing CA work and I was probably in a little bit over my head, but the firm I worked for gave me a great opportunity to go out to the job site once a week, participate in meetings, meet the owner's rep, meet the contractors. Great experience. So we were doing a big industrial flooring, and it was this, and the flooring type that we had was, there's three different colors of flooring. I don't remember the exact material, but you know, there was three different colors that didn't go together. I'll just say that. From our drawings, they were supposed to be in three different areas on this big industrial floor. And the owner's rep at one time had this just great idea after a meeting. She said, well, what if we just mix them all together? I'm not kidding. It sounds terrible, but I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. I should run this by folks in my office. She was like, no, I really think we should mix them all together. They would make an interesting pattern. It wasn't bad, but we ended up doing that. Months went by before they were actually installed. And so I had forgotten, not forgotten about it. I knew that was a decision that she had made. And I, at least from my kind of naive experience at that point, I thought the owner was directing me. This was an owner's rep, somebody who was, it was not the vice president of the company or anything. When the rest of the group, the owner's group came out, that was not just the owner's rep and looked at the floor, they said, why are these all, why are the pat, why is this a weird pattern of three colors that don't match? And the owner's rep looked at me and said, yeah, why? Oh. <laughs> 
Here's the bus. Yeah. Here it comes. So, and really? Yeah. So I had to, I mean, I'm just red faced. Like I, and I didn't want to throw her under the bus because she had made that decision and made it clear to me that that's what she thought was the right decision. And I went back through all my notes and finally I found at least some documentation, although it was only my personal notes. I could have made them up after the fact. That's to me, it was document decisions. Any decision, you have to document it because at some point, People will make a change. They will change their memory of the way a decision was made. Oh, that happens a lot, especially, you know, in a big project. It could be a decision that was made 18 months ago. Right. right? And you remember it one way and somebody else remembers it another. And unless it's down on paper, it's a different story. Documentation is so important throughout the construction process, but also in design, because you make a lot of those decisions in design. At least some of the people make them and then they're gone. And then you're left holding the bag just like Mike was. And and what do you do? The other thing I wanted to add under CA is I see architects overstepping their boundaries and their obligations. It's a rosy path because remember who you're working with. You're working with contractors who the people in the field don't understand their obligations. So they start asking architects for things that it's not my responsibility. I'm not saying means and methods, but it's pretty close. They'll ask you to do things that is their responsibility. What height do I, do I mount something? Well, it's on the drawings. You should go look. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Just go look. I had people ask me, well, how many fire extinguishers are in the building so I can order them? I don't know. You, you need to count them. I don't, I don't know. I know what type of fire extinguisher we have, but I don't know how many there are. You need to count it. You need to do your job, and I'm not going to waste my time. I've actually had people in my office do things like that for the contract. I said, that's their responsibility. We're overstepping our boundaries, and now we're, we're legally obligated or on the hook for these kind of things should we give them the wrong answer. So architects overstep their boundaries a lot. Even my classic cases, and I get arguments from people all the time, a hardware schedule. I hate hardware schedules. I hate writing them. I hate reading them. I hate looking at them. Sign me up for that. Too. Right. We're all testimony. Man, I cannot stand <laughs> that either. <laughs> and I had an architect in my office who would go through the hardware schedule line by line, making sure that the quantity was right and the model numbers were right. And I said, that's not our job. We already wrote it once. Why are you double checking? And they submitted from the shop drawing stage. I said, you can check one or two. And usually they give you cut sheets. Okay, this is the locks that I ordered. And this is the right finish and the whatever. It's a continuous hitch. I'm okay with that. But don't check quantities because what's the worst thing that could happen? They show up in the job site and there's they're short three. Who's responsible for that? If they were short three studs, who's responsible for that? My attitude is don't do their job for them. You're just checking for design intent. That's all. That's a tough one, though, because sometimes I follow that habit of I need to make sure this is right, because if it's not, I'm going to be the person that kind of takes the brunt of it, unfortunately. So, You're right. And people that. still look at you as, from day one, we're viewed as the answer provider, the problem solver. So if the contractor has a question, how many of these do I put on the job site? The inclination is ask the architect. They're the provider of everything that is and will be on this project and you say well it's in the drawings go count them yourself sometimes you're like well if they screw it up i could just tell them then we'll you know we'll get it right and it's because we think that we're infallible i'm with you on that one we try to stay away from that it's funny you brought up door hardware we actually just had a project come through the office and and i don't do as big a project as andrew does but it was a really technologically advanced kind of co-working space and the hardware schedule was dense. Every door had like different mag lock this and Bluetooth wired that. And I mean, it went on and on and on. And I think the guy who checked the drawings 
I mean, the notes that he had, I was like, this is taking like four days for us to go through it. And I was like, you don't need to check to make sure. He's like, I'm just checking for functionality. Like, did we solve the problem right the first time? And I went, okay, that's, that's fine. But don't say how many of these we're supposed to have, right? That's not supposed to be our job. So, because yeah, I was like, if you do, it's on us. That's we're right. going to buy them if we say too many. Man, gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't imagine if it was one of your jobs and you have 8 billion doors. Yeah, there's there's lots of pages, lots of pages. That's a bad road to go down, hardware. We're going to have to just take a minute. Yeah, everybody Andrew just takes a break. Himself. <laughs> You're reminding me why I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little happy that I switched out architecture to law because I did a lot of hardware schedules as a very junior level architect. They're fun, aren't they? Oh, they're, yeah, they're amazing. They're Put you to sleep. Yeah, I, I, I will say this. I know a handful of people that they're in hardware. They love it. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, and I, and I go, it seems like, I don't know if it's a gene thing or just, it's hard for me to go, well, their passion is hardware. That seems hard that it exists, but, you know, it absolutely does exist. And when you find those people that love it, you're like, all right, we're in. Yeah, I'm going to give you to be my friend so I don't have to do it with anymore. The things that make you happy. <laughs> I, I used to hear that in my early career when I was a specification writer because I loved it. And people go, okay, you're it because no one wanted to write specifications. I must be a geek because I did like doing it. I learned a lot. I don't do it as much anymore, but I still love doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Well, you know, it's, it's important. We need people to be passionate about it. Absolutely. Life of an Architect will be back in just a moment. We're sitting here with Mike Coger from the American Institute of Architects, Sal Verastro from Spillman Farmer Architects. And we're going to talk to you guys about the new AIA interior contract documents. AIA contract documents are nearly 200 forms and contracts that define the relationships and terms involved in design and construction projects. Prepared by the AIA with the consensus of owners, contractors, attorneys, architects, engineers, and others, documents have been finely tuned during their 120 years of existence. As a result, these comprehensive contracts and forms are now widely recognized as the industry standard. Did you know that it was 120 years that these contracts have been in place? Actually, 131. Really? I had yep. no idea it had been that long. He looks good for 131, doesn't he? I asked a group that I was talking to earlier today if they, if they knew how long they had been around, and I did a little research to what else happened in 1888, which is when we produced our first document. It was the year in which the Washington Monument was opened up. Wow. They've been around a long time. That is a I thought time. you were about to go with some tragic fire nope. accident or something, <laughs> and that's why it spawned the need. To <laughs> On May 22nd, the AIA revamped its interiors family of documents, allowing the architect to account for the risks and responsibilities of designing a building's interior while working with contractors and FF&E vendors. And the revised contracts are now suitable for use on any type of project beyond commercial, including residential, retail, entertainment, and hospitality. Mike, you were involved in that revamping, were you not? Absolutely. So tell us about some of the things that you went through during this revamp. They're updated. So what's what are the high points? What's changed? Sure. Uh, so the first thing we did was to interview a bunch of architects on their practice. And we learned from them, you know, what was working and what wasn't. One thing that we really tried to address in these contracts was the role that an architect who's doing interiors plays with regard to FF&E procurement. Some architects wanted to be involved, others didn't. So we gave them a document, our B254 purchasing agent scope, that if they were going to do those kinds of services, it's at least a good guideline for things that they should be looking out for that they might want to do and get paid extra for and activities that they might be a little bit wary of doing. B254, just to clarify, that's the number designation for the contract we're talking about. Yeah. 
Good point. Yeah, so we number all of our documents. A B-series document is an owner-architect agreement. And if it starts with a two in front of it, that means it is a scope of services, which is it is not a complete agreement in and of itself. It needs to be married up with a baseline agreement, a B100 series agreement. So it is just an extra piece of scope that you can do for an additional fee. That's nice. And Sal, you were involved in this project as well. I was. I think one of the things that Mike was just brought up, a lot of people don't understand that there are contract documents that can stand alone and be used alone, and there's others that need multiple documents that have to be married up together. But a lot of architects don't understand that. The other thing about the interiors documents that intrigued me was we were always perplexed why architects don't use them very much, if at all. I think we, first of all, found out that they needed to be improved. They didn't meet the current needs of the architects today, number one. And number two, the perception is that when you do interiors documents, the risks are really low. So why use a contract document? We can just use a letter agreement. And Michael tell you as an attorney that the risks are always there. Not that many people could get hurt, but like anything else, why are there lawsuits? Well, it has nothing to do with people getting hurt. It has lots to do with you didn't complete your documentation or the owner lost money. You didn't meet it on time. So all those things, it doesn't really matter what the project is. The owner can incur loss, and then there's legal ramifications. So you have to protect yourself. I think these documents are much more improved than they were when we started. That sounds great because I know liability is everywhere, right? Well, if you're interested in finding out more about AIA's interior family of documents, you can go to aiacontracts.org forward slash life of an architect. That link will be at the bottom of the show notes that we have for this episode. So again, that's aiacontracts.org forward slash life of an architect. So then what about issues after completion? We kind of tapped on it a little bit. So what are some ideas or what are some issues that come up with that? One of the things that's interesting to me, I'm going to tie into this real quick, is that the responsibility or the liability is different across the nation as far as how long after the project is complete am I liable as an architect? Like that that's all over the place? That, yeah, we call that, it's a statute of repose, uh-huh. uh, legally oh, yeah. speaking. It is the outside limits at which, you know, time limits at which a claim can be brought. Most states, well, I don't want to say most states because I don't know that, but, it, you know, around 10 years is, is about average. Mm-hmm. There are some states, though, that have six-year, eight-year, maybe even 12-year. But they, they do change. Yeah, they do change. So, well, well let me, I want to interject something. How did we lose that legal battle? You know, how, how is it that contractors have figured out how to get off the hook after a year? But here it is. They haven't gotten off after a year. I've represented a lot of contractors who get sued way after that. They So a year is their warranty Typically work, is yeah. their warranty work. So they'll come back and fix things for warranty. But they can still be sued up to about up to 10 years. Well, I use the example, I can sue you whenever I want. Right. But I can. But if it's if it is a <laughs> one that would fall outside of the statute of repose, if it, you're bringing a lawsuit against me for designing something 15 years or so after I had substantial completion of get met, I can get a motion for summary judgment in like two months easily. Now, if it was within that 10 years to try to fight out that case, it might it would take much longer. I say two months, say, thinking that that's a very quick Short resolution. Time. Yeah, that's a turn, yeah, that's a quick turnaround. Yeah. So that's a pretty easy defended case, one that's been brought outside the 10-year period. Yeah. And, but contractors are still, they have, is their statute of repose similar to ours then? Uh, it, it, yes. Uh, it varies it's, by state. It varies by state, but yes, it is. It's typically similar. Around 10 years, yeah. Mm, all right. So what are the, like what kind of issues come up post construction? Is it mostly 
I know they're called design failures, which I think is funny because to me they're installation failures or something like that, not really a design flaw because those will show up to me pretty quickly. What other things happens or... I'll give you two ideas. So when I was in private practice as an attorney and I represented contractors and architects. Uh, Turncoat. Yeah. <laughs> I designed. I, 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 come on now. Come I, on. I, de- I defended a few architects out there. But I, the, the claims that always had the big dollars to them that were the ones that you really had to hire an attorney for and get insurance uh, involved with were water claims mm. and soils. Those are the two just huge dollar kinds of claims that owners really need to go sue somebody for because they're out a whole lot of money if things start cracking and sliding down the side of a hill or if there is water damage. By the time you've noticed water damage, you've got mold throughout the building and you've got extensive problems that have probably been going on for a long time. So just for tips to architects, don't hire the geotechnical engineer. Make the owner hire the geotechnical engineer because then all of the soils issues will tend to fall directly to them, and you can at least have that Note uh, to sell. piece of... Uh, I know a lot of architects do hire, hire the geotech, but that's, you know, that's just something that traditionally the owners are responsible for site engineering sure. things, like doing surveying geotech, but also learn how to design a building that's watertight, because a lot of claims are water-based. Sal, you probably know all kinds. Yeah, I mean, number one complaint is, obviously, if there's any kind of leak, and sometimes it's a it's not a roof leak or a wall leak it's a hvac system condensation issue or those are lingering effects that happen and if you can eliminate those you've eliminated most of your claims so i'll ask the question you know what the number one punch list item is across the u.s and i know we just talked about it is hardware and what it is is a lot of owners they'll complain that their roof is leaking but they won't complain about their hardware once they're in the building so the lesson I learned is it's great to do post-evaluations after a year. And I know the AIA advocates this, going through the building and just see how the owner's using it. And sometimes there's design issues like our anticipation was this room was going to be used in this way and it doesn't work very well. Or you see they made changes. They moved a TV screen or a, a cabinet. It just didn't work out right. Those things happen, but you like to know that. And it's funny how clients won't tell you that it doesn't work right. So we found out in post-evaluations that they'll go, yeah, this is not exactly what we thought. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. So you'll learn, A, but B, you can at least try to help them out. And they feel like they have a friend. One story I had does involve hardware. It was on a school, and I did a one-year evaluation. I was walking through, and I was walking by the, it was a toilet room for faculty. It was off the corridor. And I saw this hasp on the door. And I was like, what's that? And they said, the hardware on this door, you, you specified it wrong. I go, what are you talking about? And they said, they went in the room, the toilet room, and they would come in and close the door, and they put a hasp on it like you would in a toilet stall. I said, are you kidding me? The teachers were like, well, we didn't know what else to do. And I thought, that's not what we specified. And when I went back and looked, the contractor put the wrong hardware on that door and switched it with another door. So I said... It just had a nice passage latch on it that was like always open. Exactly. (laughs) So we we switched it, and the problem went away, and they said, boy, I wish I had known that. They've been using it like that for a year. I think those post-evaluations really help us out to learn that things aren't always perfect, and they... We tell clients, complain. Tell us what's not working right. We want to know because we don't intentionally make things wrong or design them wrong. We want them to work out for you. We want you to be happy. Yeah. Well, I guess that ties back into what Andrew said, and that's a, that's not a design issue. That's a installation In a way, shortcoming. yeah, let's hope. And there are, there are design issues, though. I mean, let's face it, we're not perfect. And 
uh, we do make mistakes. Um, it's best to address them up front, and that's why evaluations, post-evaluations work well. We should really do them within a couple months just to see how things are working out. Yeah, I find that sometimes in that regard, the rooms that we design and the activities that when you're designing it, they tell you you're going to go on inside that room. Once it's being used, that's not what happens. That's a communication issue, I think. If you're not dealing with the right people, then they're saying, well, this is how this is how music class works. They're going to start here and they're going to go there and we need to do this. And then when the, the different music teacher comes in or the actual, it could be the actual one, no, that's not what I do in my classroom. No, that's not how we operate. And so they get really mad about stuff that's built in somewhere and, you know, not the right way. And you're like, well, I, I never got to talk to you specifically, <laughs> but somebody told me what you wanted. And so that's what we did, but sorry that that wasn't what you wanted. And now they, you know, they get kind of mad at you about it. So well, if you have it the... documented, then you could show them, and then it's your get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Because then they go, okay, Sue told you that, but that's not true. So, okay, you're off the hook. <laughs> yeah, except hope, for right? now let's Sue's hope. coming for you. Yeah, now, now Sue's got my number, and we're all in trouble, for sure. That's for sure. what we call Mike to get us out of jail. <laughs> yeah, hey, Mike, make, make sure you leave your card behind. You can. Yeah, 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 I, I, yeah, I need ran that out of sure. cards already. Oh, oh no. <laughs> we're getting to the end of the episode and we leave the fun part for the very end so everyone leaves with a good taste in their mouth right we talked about that earlier today but what i want to know is for the people that are listening what is the one most important thing for a contract like can you even boil it down to a single thing is there if you say if you're only going to do one thing this is where you best put your efforts toward so can i just talk really fast and say like 10 you can sure okay so first thing honestly read it read your contract understand it if you don't understand something that an owner has put in front of you. Like contract language should be accessible to anybody who can read because ultimately you're going to be performing according to the contract. So if you see an indemnity clause that is just all twisted and mangled in the way it's worded, tell your owner, I don't understand this. I don't understand this and I, I want to live up to my contract, but I can't live up to something that I don't understand. So read your contracts, scrutinize them, and if they don't make common sense, then strike that language out or at least consider talking to your owner and saying, I don't understand this language. Let's get it boiled down to something that, that I can understand. Uh, and then I can sign the agreement. There's all kinds of other things to think about just off the top of my head. Indemnity is a big one. Oftentimes that is a very important risk shifting type of a provision. So scrutinize those and hire an attorney to look those over. Talk to your insur- your PLI insurance uh, carriers. All, oftentimes they'll review contracts for you. Sal, you, you probably got a few too. So. Besides what you just said, number one for me, my answer would have been understanding our obligations as architects, and not just myself, but everyone on the team. So often, you'll send a representative out and the client will say, for example, since we're talking about interior documents, can you provide this interior design for me as part of the project? And of course, the person in the field who didn't read the contract says, oh yeah, we can do that. Not understanding it's an additional service, we end up going through the legwork of doing it and finally somebody who really understands like the project manager says hey that wasn't in our original scope of work the client says i wouldn't have paid it's for it had too I, late now yeah, too late right, yeah, yeah it's yeah. done so understanding your obligations up front everybody on the team and trying to help the owner understand their obligations as well that if it boils down to anything that's what i would do i think it's good takeaways yeah, I think I got, so too. I got sure. a few more if you, if you got time for them. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and tell us. All right. So don't agree to anything that isn't covered by your professional liability insurance, right? So you can contract to more liability and more responsibility than your insurance will cover. Typically, your PLI insurance, your E&O insurance will cover your negligent acts, and that's it. 
And if you are doing things and agreeing to warranty something, if you're agreeing to go beyond what the architect's standard of care is, so you're agreeing to be perfect in some way, that you're going to be the best architect in the state of Texas, you know, then, then yeah, it's, <laughs> it's possible to agree to more responsibility than your insurance will cover. So the best negotiating strategy with an owner is if you get something that they're asking you to do that feels piece of contract language that feels a little bit overstepping, say, I need to talk to my insurance company to see if it's covered because I can't do something for you that's not covered by insurance. Other things, make sure that you align your prime contracts with your consultant agreements. So for example, if you don't have limitation of liability in your owner architect agreement, don't give all your subs and your consultants limitation of liability. I've been involved in a few of those and it can be the amount of just risk shifting that happens in that scenario is pretty remarkable where a mechanical engineer, for example, that was responsible for a $10 million error gets out for $60,000. But the architect then has to continue on the lawsuit simply because they didn't have a limitation of liability in their upstream owner architect agreement. You think about those kind of scenarios and want to make sure that whatever agreement you've got with the owner, you're passing those things all the way down and, and not giving up more than you're getting from the owner, if that makes sense. Sure. I think it does. To me anyway, because I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You got to have those people held to the same stuff that you're held to. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So how does that actually work? Because the owner architect agreement and the contract language that's set between those two parties, how do you pull in the contract that your MEP engineer sends you into the same language or stip- so do you have to say i want you to go back and add this paragraph to your contract and no, i want to sign you say they have to abide by your contract with the owner exactly so everything that the owner is re- making me responsible for you are responsible for as well it goes downstream it goes downstream so, so so do you add that language to their proposal that they send to you yeah, or the con- my contract. And then, then they should say, well, you need to send me a copy of your contract. And yeah, they and often I, do. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. I do and too. It's there. I mean, I mark out some stuff, but. And not to be a salesman for AIA docs, but, you know, if you use AIA docs, they're all coordinated in that manner. So you've got the architect consultant agreement will reference the prime agreement. So it's all kind of bundled up there. So you, you know, as long as you're referencing back to that prime agreement and all the terms in there, then you've, you've got continuity yeah, amongst contracts. Hopefully covered, or covered the best you can right. be. That's right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, I have more questions, but it'll be sure. too far of a rabbit hole. So I'm going <laughs> to, we'll, have a, we beer, like we'll have a beer, and I'll ask you the questions off air. It really has to do with the difference of, you know, a lot of projects I do, like I do a lot of residential work, and so I don't use a lot of AIA contracts because owners find them scary. If I go to a homeowner and say, I'm doing a house for you, and I hand them this, you know, whap. Well, document, have, but they're smaller ones. Yeah, and they're smaller. They're smaller. Yeah, they're smaller. But then sometimes I'll have MEP engineers or structural engineers on those same projects, and I've never had like get an AIA contract then between my consultants on a residential project. Everything seems to be just a little turned down, a little bit more looser in that environment. But the money's no different. I do houses that cost more than some schools that get built. You know. We talk about those issues a lot and about how complicated or how dense AIA contract docs can be. I mean, a B101 owner architect agreement, something like 18 to 20 pages, and it's dense. We don't double space. But homeowners, even homeowners, they're familiar with, they're okay with dense documents. Think of the home you just bought, you know, your home you bought. You got a thick pack of documents there, 
and you're expected to read it and somewhat understand it. So it's it's not alien to be put a fairly dense pack of documents in front of someone. And I can tell you that the B101 is far more understandable and simple than my mortgage agreement or my real estate purchase agreement. So, But the analogy comparison to a certain extent breaks apart because let's say that I'm hiring one of the two of you to do my house for me and you hand me your three-page hourly services contract and you hand me one that's 18 pages, single-spaced, very dense, and I look at it and you're both charging me the same amount, you're less scary. As opposed to if I'm buying a house and either you're my mortgage broker or you're my mortgage broker, your paperwork's going to be the same. Yeah, right. No, that's that's a good point. And, and that's definitely something that we know that folks who do residential work in particular are dealing with constantly. And that's why we did create the, I think it's the B105 is our, our most slimmed down owner architect yeah, agreement. Like it's four or five pages or something. It's five right? pages. Yeah, five and pages. it's got a lot of the core concepts in it. It still is missing some of the more nuanced provisions. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't you know, as an as there's a, some other responsibility sections right about who's yeah. responsible for what. It kind of it gets to the it gets to the down. main points yeah. though. Ownership of documents. I mean, that's a big one, and, but it does at least touch on that. It touches on disputes, how they're resolved, those kinds of core issues. It still gets to. So we B one hundred five. There it is. There, that's right. Boom. It's all comes Check down out. to risk. It, and you're absolutely right. A homeowner, for some reason, they trust realtors. And why would they? I don't know why they don't trust architects. I don't. Are we scary or something? But you're right. If you throw an 18-page contract at them, they're going to like, oh, my God, what is this? And they're not going to read it. Let's face it. They don't yeah. read it. I mean, because honestly, and who reads their mortgage paperwork either? Yeah, you're right. I exactly. do. You sign it. <laughs> yeah, but that's where you're at, though, man. Yeah, that's why you're well, the attorney you, in the group. That's you your get, passion. You get to reading it all the way through and understanding it, and then they tell you, you can't change anything. So, so I'm going to wrap up the podcast, the technical part of it. I mean, the really fun part. We're just going to do the boring hypothetical at this point. But it happens to be my most favorite part. You're both familiar with hypothetical questions? Yes. Yes. So your hypothetical question for this episode is, if you had no physical or mental requirements for sleep, what would you do with that extra time? And do you think it would change your life? Hmm. So just to clarify the question here, this is, so I still have to go to work, obviously. Yeah, your, your life still is unchanged. unchanged. So these hours are going to happen in the middle of the night. Unless you have a job that works in yeah, that so night. I can't go play softball for eight hours after you know in the middle of the night. So well, you, I mean, but that could be part of the answer to your question. You might say, well, now all of a sudden, if I have twenty four hours a day to fill, and I'd find a midnight I softball shift league. It around you, you, you might you, you might shift, shift your... your jobs around a little bit so that you do have daylight off hours. Oh, I like that. You're the, like you're that. the midnight to eight a.m. attorney. Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Sounds really great. I think the clientele coming in there is going to be top notch. Yeah. All right, so I, am, I, I've stammered on and demurred a little bit, but am I the first? Yeah, you got it. Okay, you, you stepped up. Here's my answer. I'd figure out a way to play more softball, hang out with my family more. I have a almost three-year-old daughter, and I don't get to spend enough time with her. And in the other six hours, I would probably – I'd tell you that I'm going to read books. I'll probably play video games, though, because I like video games. I like that you're honest about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Front. I do like video games, and I never get a chance to play them. So I would have a big screen – and I'd, uh, I'd play a lot of first-person shooter games. That is so funny because I, when I told That's my wife, I, like I have a 14-year-old daughter, and I told my wife and my daughter that this was the question you were going to get. And my daughter starts saying all these things. My wife goes, that is total garbage. You would sit in there and watch YouTube videos and play video games. And my daughter's like, no, I wouldn't. And my wife's like, yeah, you would. Yeah. Come on. Of course. Yeah. So at least, at least you're being honest about it. Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd have sore thumbs. 
Sal, have you figured out what you do with all this extra time on your you know, hand? Uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, wait, wait, you know what would be funny? So I go, I would uh, start a homeless shelter oh. and like, make your answer <laughs> look you terrible. <laughs> you're like, no, no. I'm going to hear you. He's going to play video games, and you're going to like make the world a better place. Yeah, well, it's going to be world peace right here. It's funny you said hungry. that because that's part of the answer. But one thing that came to mind is daylight. So obviously there's still seven hours of darkness. And so what do you do at night? It's interesting I, when Mike's answer was, nighttime softball well i would do the daytime things because as architects we're inside a lot and i like to be outside so i would take advantage and flip it around and i would work at night to do the things i do at night so i can spend more time outside during the daytime and i i feel the same way i would spend more time with my family because although i'm assuming they're sleeping (laughs) at night too but and then i also thought about how do you help humanity i mean my dream in life, I'm not kidding you, my dream in life. <laughs> wow, Mike, you look I'm like a shirt. I'm, I'm, like a nice no, no. I'm doing six hours of video games. No, I would, I, would, I, would, I would be like to be outside, and I like to, uh, I'm into gardening and raising fruit trees and things like that. But the other thing I would do is help people reevaluate their life and train them to do certain things and try to get them back on their feet. But that being said, I would definitely put more time into my family life because we work all day when they're up, and the only time I see my kids is an hour before dinner. And an yeah, so the point on yours is to try to shift some of your daytime yeah. workload to the night. So Absolutely. That, like you don't start work at sunup and work until regular quitting time. You only work part of exactly. that time. Shift it to afternoons, goofing off with the kids. Be more efficient with the daylight. I mean, I, I don't mind being do inside con- in the dark. Mike could have done, he said, I read contracts at night and play softball during the day. That's right. You could have, you could have said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I just, you know. But now he's playing video games <laughs> no. during the day. He's like, no. And playing I'm, softball no, no, at no, night. He's like, I'm going to stick with video games. Yeah. I'm not changing my answer. You know, I, I'll, <laughs> I'll say this, and it was kind of funny. When I asked my daughter about this, she's like, I'd still sleep. And I was like, you're not required to sleep. She's like, I, well, what, what else am I going to do? I'm not required to sleep. But he didn't say I couldn't sleep. Yeah, yeah that was, I was just actually thinking about that Sleep's answer. Like, Man, she's going to be that. an attorney. It's a, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A good yeah. So I thought about it myself. And there's all these things. I tend to align with what Mike said. Like I try to rationalize it in my brain is to say, oh, how could I shift some of my daytime activities to nighttime when everyone's sleeping if I have to draft or if I'm doing design, I can just do that at night when it's quiet and peaceful and I can be focused. And and I think I would do some of that for sure. But I honestly think I'd just get bored. And I think it's a real possibility that I would go get another job. Like I would go somewhere just to have something to do to fill my time other than, because I've tried sitting around doing nothing for a while. At the local warehouse store. Yeah. I mean, Lily, I think I would do that because I, like we've all been You've been sick and you're like home for a couple of days and you just get stir crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's so much just laying around and like I'm sick watching Hogan Heroes or just like nothing's that great anymore. Nobody even knows what that show is anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, do. Everybody I know, does. but yeah, but he's throwing it out there. Yeah. And so I, I do. I think I'd probably end up getting another job. And then I'd, I'd keep all that money and, and buy video games. There you yeah. go. No, it's not <laughs> as long as I can borrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to I think about it. I mean, this is totally relative to my current state. I would use that extra time to exercise, do healthy things. I don't feel like right now I don't have enough time to take care of my body the way that I should. And so if I didn't have to sleep, if that wasn't part of taking care of my body, I'd do other stuff. Yeah, but that's like I, one hour. You no, have like no, no. Because I used to, to you know, I used to run when I was younger. I run marathons, so I'd go run for three hours, two or three every, hours every day. So I could go do that. Not every day, but I'd take some time. But he likes to always really 
tear down my <laughs> ideas, my answers. Yeah, you'd have to yeah. get your knees replaced eventually. Yeah, yeah, but it would be the whole time. Down. But I mean, I think it would be something. He's like got a lot that. of time for surgery. That's well, what I, I know. Say. I have extra time for that. I'd learn. <laughs> actually, I'd learn how to do my own surgeries. But I think exercise would be the biggest thing that I would, if I didn't have to sleep. That would be the first thing. And then the second would be spending, trying to figure out how to spend more time with my family somehow. And work at night is my favorite anyway. That's when I do my best work already is when it's quiet and there's nobody around. And I can't do that in the early morning. I'm a late night person anyway. So 12 midnight to like 4 a.m. would be like my prime hours because usually right now it's about 11 to 2 is my prime time <laughs> to really get focused anyway. So, mm-hmm. That's um, so interesting. Okay. I'm going to call that a wrap. So as you can see, the legal portion of architecture is full of issues that can impact your overall ability to create great designs. Also, it can impact your career in ways you may have never imagined. So the heart of this episode was to expose everyone to yet another facet of the profession of architecture and how much information that we as architects are required to know in pursuit of our ideas. Andrew and I would like to thank our guests, Mike Coger and Sal Verastro, for joining us today and providing their expertise on legal matters of design. If you liked today's episode and you can find it in your heart, please take the next 30 seconds and head on over to iTunes or your favorite listening app and subscribe so you get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded to your podcast player of choice every two weeks. While you're there, but only for feeling generous, please leave us some feedback as we'd really like to hear your thoughts on the show. And a five-star, it doesn't count if it's in pencil rating. Be sure to visit theoriginallifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Also, be sure to stick around to the very end and we'll attempt to reward you with our own version of a blooper reel. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Oh, glad you both could be here with us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. You guys, this legal talk is making it hot in here. (laughs) That's right. I know. So, and I have to turn the page. Everyone's being cheap, printing on both sides of the paper. Save the planet. Screw the planet. (laughs) Okay. I don't want to have to turn it over because it makes noise. Yeah. Because I don't want it makes noise. That's really what it is. Easy. That was easy. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are. Now the fun part, right? That was was the serious part. Now we can do. Oh, we were having fun. Oh, all right. (laughs) More fun. More fun is coming. It's relative, Sal. (laughs) Yeah. It is true. It's all relative. There wasn't enough laughing in there for it to be a lot of fun. Okay. We headed that direction. Make, don't look at me either. I know. I know. We're just not. We normally sit across from each other, so this is we're this having. Is new. A, yeah. We're learning. I like.